All right. Good morning, everybody. You guys uh, came knowing that there would be a decent amount of rain at any given time, right? It's supposed to be a lot of rain. They have a technical term. Yeah, but here's the thing. There's a technical term that this thing's called. Someone told me. It's an atmospheric river. Like, I don't know about flying rivers in the sky. I don't know about that. I like the rain, man. We'll see, we'll see what happens. Uh, so yeah, we need the rain. So it is, is a blessing. Um, as mentioned, those of you who are watching online at a different time, uh, 9 o'clock wasn't on, online. So uh, welcome to 11 o'clock service. And for those of you who are watching seven hours from now, you don't know anything that happened this morning. It was very problematic and stressful. Um, but we made it through. Uh, other good note was many of you aware a couple weeks ago we did a budget presentation. Uh, our budget was officially approved by the elders and by you all, the congregation, with 100% approval, which is uh, remarkable because it says just that we're, we're on the same page and we're ready to move forward and be about our Father's business. So good news on that. Okay, we are in the Gospel of Matthew, which is a biographical account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, specifically for today, we are in a section called the Sermon on the Mount. Pastor Sam kicked off the section of the Sermon on the Mount last week with the Beatitudes. Now, today we'll be looking at two images that Jesus gives us. And these two images are so powerful and so strong that they continue to have relevance, not just in church culture 2,000 years later, but in secular culture. Like these phrases are still used in the secular world. And what I'd like to do is first kind of take a brief look at the two images and then come back around and put them in their more fuller biblical context from the beginning of the Bible to the start of the New Testament. And hopefully with that, allow new meaning and nuance to rise to the surface. And we get the full picture of what these two images mean. So, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So this is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount speaking to uh, Jewish people in northern Galilee. Now, there's a temptation here, and some of you might have done this. It, it's not a problem, but when we hear this phrase, you're the salt of the earth, immediately many people will begin to like, create a list of all the things that salt does. And then once you have the list of all the things that salt does, you sort of have this one-to-one correspondence of, okay, if this is what salt does, this is what believers ought to do. So what salt does, well, how can we make a moral or behavioral uh, principle out of that? And so you develop all this list. Salt does this, therefore believers ought to do this. Salt does this, therefore believers ought to do this. That's fine, but most likely these people hearing this from Jesus In this region, they just hear something and they kind of get a big picture idea. They're not there taking notes and trying to come out with 11 principles out of salt that we can live by. They primarily would know salt for three things, namely two, but probably it could be three. The third one that's often not discussed is salt's used as a fertilizer. There's this myth that says uh, salt, never put salt on on plants, it'll kill, kill your plants. Well, if you put tons of salt on your plants, I'm sure it will kill them. But salt used in, in the right amount actually enriches the soil. And so people use dead sea salt, they use sea salt uh, to enrich the soil. So there's this idea of making the soil better. Two, it preserves things, salt preserves things, we know that. And then third, the strongest one, it just makes things taste better, right? Like salt, tea, goodness. 
It makes things better. You go over to a friend's house, they cook you a meal, they're being hospitable. It ain't the best of meals. What do you do with it? Get a little salt. Because salt can make anything better. Think about a potato, man. A potato is a rock in the ground. It is a rock you find in the ground. You can pick it up. You can use it as a weapon. It's a rock, okay? But what do you do with that thing? You chop it up and you fry it and you put salt on it. French fries, delicious. Rock, French fry. That's the power of salt. It just does this stuff. So again, when people hear this, oh, salt, salt is the earth. Salt makes things better. Makes things better. And so people at this time in Israel would be going, oh, of course, yeah, we're salt of the earth. We're supposed to be God's people in God's land doing God's law. And that makes things better. Kind of simple and straightforward. The next thing is significant because Jesus says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Now, can salt become less salty? The answer is technically no. Salt is chemically simple. It's simple. It's basic. It's not necessarily broken down. Salt loses its flavor or its saltiness when it becomes diluted. So when you add other stuff to it. So if you want to rip someone off, you say, I got this good salt. I'll sell it to you for this amount. But there's other elements in there that are diluting it. You, you, you don't necessarily make salt less salty. It's chemically simple. However, you can dilute it so it becomes less salty. And this is, of course, what the mission of Israel was in the Old Testament. Israel was supposed to be holy and distinct. They were different. They were supposed to be a salty people, not losing their potency. And they did this by being God's people in God's land, doing God's law. So distinct from the rest of the world. Which, by the way, there's an implication for the church here at this point, is that as a Christian, you are supposed to be distinct in some manner. If you just look like everyone else, talk like everyone else, act like everyone else, spend your money the same way, watch the same entertainment, there's nothing different about you, there's probably a problem. We're called to be distinct. Now, how you do that is where it gets complicated. And I've used this kind of idea before, but when we talk about Christians interacting with the rest of the world, with culture, there's usually two extremes that we can fall into, and they're primarily based upon our own kind of temperament, our background, our upbringing, and our personality. But sometimes when we're interacting as Christians with the world, we can have a tendency to eject from the world on one extreme. The other extreme would be embrace. What do I mean by eject? What I mean by that is you can put yourself in such an isolated Christian bubble because you don't want to be tainted by the world. The world's evil and it's bad and I'm called to be distinct and different and I have to remain holy and I got everything like a Christian version of everything. It's this kind of alternate Christian world you could live in. You got your own Christian music, Christian book, Christian literature, Christian clothes, Christian handshakes, Christian dances. Everything you do is so thoroughly Christian, you have no potential to be tainted by the world in any way. But you also are so removed from the rest of the world that you have no Christian witness. It's completely isolated. Now, there's, there's some extreme forms of this that can be dangerous. Some of you were brought up maybe in um, church cultures that emphasize this so much that it was like absolutely smothering. You always feared of any type of judgment that would come your way if, if you walked this way or that way because then, you know, the sin would, would get you. And some of you might remember a phrase 
not a phrase, but you hear something like this. Hey, you, do you want to be caught in a bowling alley when Jesus Christ comes back? Because, so for those of you who are like, what in the world is this guy talking about? Some of you guys are laughing, and some of you guys are going, like, the pain's coming back to your mind because there was pressure. Like, if you were to be caught in a bowling alley or a movie theater or watching, like, a Raiders game, when the Lord Jesus were to come back, like, this judgment because you've been tainted by the world and the sin and the corruption. It's like, oh. But the problem is, is you're so isolated, there's, there's no Christian witness. On the other end of the spectrum, you can just embrace culture. And that's what I already talked about, is that you just, you just look like everyone else, you spend your money the same way everyone else does, you watch the same stuff, you consume the same entertainment, there's nothing distinct about you. And Christians are called to occupy this space where we're not ejecting or embracing, but we're able to engage culture, maintaining our distinction and our holy witness. And you do that through the scriptures, through other Christians and their wise counsel, coming and speaking into your life because there's no formula. The Bible doesn't say like, you can do this, do this, and this, and this. Don't do this. Like bowling on Tuesdays is, is okay. Like bowling on Wednesdays, bad. Like it doesn't work that way. For those of you who don't know, bowling's not bad. I'm just, there's a whole church culture. Just take my word for it. Uh, and, and you have this wide godly, godly counsel and the scriptures in church and, and small groups and friends and all of this stuff to help you navigate this difficult wor- wor- world of how can I maintain my distinction, my Christian witness, but also not be so isolated that I have no Christian witness. You're the salt of the earth. And it goes on with another image. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now already we have to pause because what comes to modern people's minds when they picture a city is different than what would come to mind for these people. So for many people today, well, let's just say here in Gilroy, Gilroy, Morgan Hill, Hollister area. If you think of the city, what do you think of? What's the city? San Francisco. Okay, and if San Francisco is the city, then you think of maybe the Bay Area, San Jose included, the kind of greater Silicon Valley, or you think of big cities, New York, Chicago, San Francisco. And when you have the image of those cities, what comes to mind is not a, like a, a nice, wholesome, zero crime rate place with affordable acreage, where you can grow and develop and, and spread out your family over the next generations. Like, it's densely populated. There's lots of people. There's traffic. Some of you, depending upon your personality, you love the city or you hate the city. But either way, the image is one of that, that busyness and, and that type of life. And it has a ton of problems in the city. Now, we got problems. Like, Gilroy got problems. We have, but they're different than city problems, right? They're different. For... An ancient person, when they thought of a city, they would think of something on a hill, on a mountain that's surrounded by a city wall. That's what this is about, the city on a hill. 
The cities were the places of safety, security, and salvation. If there was trouble or there was a problem or an issue, you would run to get to the city, and in the city, you would find safety, security, and salvation. Where now today, if something chaotic is going to happen in the city, it's like, no, we got to get to the country. Like, but that's the opposite. Like, you don't run, like, in, in, in the ancient world, two major things could sneak up on you and take your life, natural disaster and war. There were other things like sickness and famine, but big picture stuff, natural disaster and war. And if one of those things were to break out, you were to run to the city and find safety, security, and salvation within its elevated position and its enclosed walls. Let's say you were a poor farmer. You would live outside of the city walls. And while you're farming, you might hear the trumpet blast, and that meant war is coming. So you would take you and your family and get inside the city walls. That's how you'd survive. Now, another interesting thing that takes place with cities in this time period in this region is they're often composed of a specific type of stone, limestone. And limestone interacts with light in a unique way in that whether it's the sun or the moon or simple lanterns that are lit in the city, the limestone gives off this golden hue. It kind of reflects the light back. So that no matter where you were at, if you heard danger was coming, you could look around and look for the high place on the mountain or the hill, and there you would see the glow of the city, and you would know to run there, again, to find safety, security, and salvation. The ultimate city on a hill in the biblical world is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the ultimate city on the hill, and you can see kind of the limestone interacting with the sun. It's, it's actually quite beautiful, and if you've been to Israel, you know this. That's a picture in the night, and there's lights there, and the, the, the limestone just kind of bounces that light back. Jerusalem is called the city of gold for this reason, because of the limestone. And so Jerusalem is supposed to be the place where you run to to find safety, security, and salvation. Now, it's fascinating about this, and this is something I discovered, I don't know, in probably third grade, I don't know exactly when, but... Um, as a kid, Israel and Jerusalem, they're always on the news. Like even today, right? There, there's so much, of the like so much of the world events deal with, with Israel. And so when I was a little kid, like you just picture Israel as like, dude, whatever that place is, it's like the Bible was there. It's always on the news. It's got to be like the epic center, like the hugest, massive place. And then you're like third grade, you're looking at the globe. And you can't find it. Like where someone helps you, it's like, that's Israel? That's it? Man, like San Jose is bigger than that, man. Like this isn't that, like what's going on? And it's very small. But you have to understand where its position is incredibly influential. So, it, so in the ancient world, uh, two of the major highways ran through Israel. One to the left of Jerusalem, one to the right. The Via Maris and the King's Highway so that massive amounts of trade, commerce, and business would have to travel through Israel in order to get to their locations, their intended destination. Which meant that literally the nations of the known world at that time would travel through Israel. And there they were supposed to see God's people in God's land doing God's law and ask a question. 
Who is this God? Who, they would inquire of the God of Israel. Who is he? And so even though it's tiny, it had this massive influence in the world. Everyone would walk through. They would see Jerusalem of gold. And they would say, you people are distinct. You're different. Why is that? And the response would be, let us tell you about our God. Yahweh in the temple. He's king of kings and, and lord of lords. So Israel, although tiny, had this massive role. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. It can't. It shines no matter what. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Okay, now what I'd like to do is come back on both of these terms and put them in sort of their place in the the whole biblical context, the entirety of the Old Testament, because we encounter a problem when we don't do that. When we read the Sermon on the Mount, oftentimes the phrases salt of the earth and light of the world, especially salt of the earth, gets reduced to something akin to be a good person that does nice things. In fact, that's sort of how the phrase is used. Have you ever heard someone say, they're a real salt of the earth person? I mean, they're a good person, they do nice things. Okay. Disclaimer, very important. I am not saying don't be a good person who tries to do nice things. Don't be a jerk. That's not the goal of this. Don't do that. However, this is not merely about trying to be a nice person. And this passage gets reduced to that again and again and again. In fact, if you read some of the scholarly um, material on the book of Matthew, they'll say something. Jesus is teaching his followers that acts of goodness are better than words or, 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 or deeds are better than, than speech. So it's not about what you say or what you talk about. It's about being a good person that does nice things. Oh. Being a good person that does nice things as the end goal of your religious structure is something that is very tickling to a postmodern ear. Hey, let's just be good people. We do nice things, man. That's what, it's, that's what Christianity is all about. Just be good people, be nice things, man. How about you come over here and be a good person with me? Be nice things, man. I'll buy you lunch. Again, I am not saying don't be that. But there is so much more here. So first, you are the salt of the earth. The phrase, halas taste geis, salt of the earth. Focus on that last part of it, geis. It's, it's the word for earth. And earth is a fine translation. The problem with that is that word earth is incredibly flexible, right? Like it can mean a lot of different things. And it means things different for the modern person. So when you think of earth, what might come to your mind? Planet earth. Like we can see pictures of planet earth. Um, You can also say if you're a gardener, you're outside gardening and you're talking about the earth, what might you be referring to? The soil. And you can grow stuff in said soil And, and it grows out of the earth and then you can eat it. And some things like beets have a earthy taste, right? It's an earthy taste, which means they taste like dirt, (laughs) which means they are not made for human consumption. God gave you senses to detect this type of things. If it tastes bad, if it tastes like dirt, 
You don't consume it. All right? Uh, it can also mean, like, but uh, earth, this word can also just mean dirt or dust, uh, a taste. It means all these different types of things. Now, this phrase in Greek corresponds to a Hebrew word, Eretz, which again can mean earth, dust, land. But in the Old Testament, land, Eretz, can have a specific technical meaning in that the land in the Old Testament is not just any old ordinary land. The land is the promised land. It's Israel. And so, for example, today, the longest serving newspaper in Israel is called Haaretz, news from the land. And they don't mean news from planet Earth. They mean news from Israel. The land is the holy land. And I'm convinced that a first century Jew in northern Galilee hearing Jesus speak, hearing him say, you are the salt of the land, earth, dust, they would hear, oh yeah, we're, we're the salt of the holy land. We're the salt of the promised land. We're supposed to be God's people in God's land doing God's law. And that makes everything better. So that's, that's the first layer of this. But then Jesus says, you are the light of the world. The word used for world here is cosmos. And you don't have to be like a Greek scholar to know what cosmos sounds like. Cosmos. So one goes from specific locality. You are the salt of the earth, the land, the promised land. But then the vision is expanded to cosmos. That's not just the world as in planet earth. That's everything. Totality, universality. You are the light of the cosmos. Now, when Jesus says this to his hearers, they have a stream of rich biblical images and metaphors and themes running through the Old Testament that color this phrase. Light of the world in the Old Testament is the vocation of Israel. They are called to be the light of the world. That's their job. It's in their job description. But that job description also says it's not just so that you, you could shine brightly. It's so that all the nations may know the true and living God. So think about how Israel begins. Israel begins with God making a covenant with Abraham. And Abraham is said, God tells him he is going to get a great name, a great land, great people. But also that his people, his descendants would bless all the families of the earth. In Abraham's people, all the families, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are somehow going to be blessed. And then that covenant is echoed throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. So you see again and again and again, Israel being a light to the Gentiles so that all people might know the one true living God. I'll give you some examples. Isaiah 49, 6. The Lord says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now, nations, when you encounter that word in the New Testament, the Greek word is ethnos, where we get ethnicities. In Hebrew, it's goyim, it's Gentiles, meaning all the different people groups. God's desire is that all the people groups would come to know him and love him and worship him. But he's going to do that through the people of Israel. Israel will be the mechanism by which the nations know the true and living God. And that's echoed again and again and again 
in the Old Testament. Isaiah 42, 6, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Isaiah 60, 1 through 3, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. This is said again and again and again. Israel, God's people in God's land doing God's law, will be a witness to the nations. And the end goal of that, the point of that, was that the nations, all people, would come to know the true and living God. These next two are from the book of Psalms. And the reason why that's so important is the Psalms are the hymn book. They're the song book of ancient Israel. This is what they sing again and again and again. I mean, they would have some songs that they would know and sing kind of culturally or in their family, but the songs that you would like know by heart would be the Psalms. We don't have a modern equivalent to that. The closest thing we have as a modern equivalent to a songbook that pretty much everyone in a culture knows, this will be convicting, is Disney songs. That is the closest thing we have to an ancient hymn book like Israel had. Where if you, you, you say a lyric that just like the majority of people, or not everyone, but a good chunk of people just, oh yeah, I know that song. You know what I mean? So it's like, I can show you the world shining, shimmering. Like, you just know it, right? Those songs have been embedded into you since your childhood. The Psalms for ancient Israel were that. They just knew them inside and out. And they would know things like this. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. Ancient Israel was singing about a coming day when all the ethnicities, all the people groups, all the ethnos, all the goyim would come to worship their God. They were singing about it regularly. Psalm 57, 9, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. They were singing about this stuff. They knew it inside and out. God one day will draw all people and he's going to use us, his servant, to do so. Why is that so important? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world because Jesus is not just saying this to to tell his followers and by extension, us 2,000 years later, hey, just me, man, focus on being a good person. Do a lot of nice things. We behave in a way. We act holy and distinct in a way. We obey God's commands in such a way that we point people to the true and living God. That's the goal. That's the point. We behave differently. We act differently. We do the salt thing. We do the light thing with an end goal in mind. It's not just so, well, yeah, I'm 
I could kind of remark on my own moral platitudes. I'm a good person and nice things. We're all Sermon on the Mount people. That that's tickles the postmodern ear that Jesus just wants you to be nice. Look, first off, I don't, I don't know how I could be a nice person if I don't tell you about Jesus because he's the best thing I got. He's the best thing I have to offer you. Yes, I want to help you Christians. We want to be charitable. We want to be generous. We'll help. What do you need? How can I help you in your life? But the best thing that I can offer you is to tell you about what Jesus has done for me, how he's changed me. That's the best thing I got, man. So I, I can't by definition be a good person or a nice person if I don't tell you about Jesus. Secondly, um, it's so arrogant for us to reduce this. Well, let's just focus on being good people because then we can mission accomplish. I'm a good and nice person. Come on, man. You're gonna, you think you're a nice person? Here's a test. Here's a test. How about, how about for a month you try to talk solely with love and respect to the people you claim to love most in your life? No snarkiness, no snapping. No, root, no, no, no getting frustrated with your kids. I mean, you claim to love these people more than anybody, but if you look at your behavior, you find yourself being rude, even just a little bit more to them than to anyone else in your life. It's like, man, you can't even be good to the people you claim to love the most. Try it for a month. You go, month's a long time. <laughs> what about, some of you know, you didn't even get to church today without being grouchy to people you love. Oh man, it's already raining. There's gonna be more. We're gonna to go to church, man. You're fighting in the car, bickering. You're not even thankful. You're the most blessed people on the face of the earth. We're not even thankful on our way to church. So it's like, when you say, oh yeah, let's just focus on being good and nice. By whose standard? By what standard? So it's arrogant to think, well, let's just reduce it to that and call it mission accomplished. Secondly, if I'm gonna be a good person, person that has blessed me the most is Jesus. How can I not talk to, to you about him? And so if you focus on salt of the earth, light of the world, it becomes about simple behavioral modification and being a good person. When in reality, every single person who heard Jesus say light of the world, they know what that's attached to. Light of the world for the nations to know the one true king, the one true God. There's a phrase that's... Um, you can use this phrase in an appropriate manner. Some of you have used it, so don't think I'm attacking you. But you can use this phrase in, in, in a way to get out of the difficult things. And starting around like my generation, late millennial and younger, this, this, this phrase started to be used as, as a way to wiggle out of um, doing the hard thing. It goes this, some of you might have heard it. it goes, Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Okay. Great. Behave in such a way that your works point people to God. And then when they inquire or you have the opportunity, present the gospel. Great. If that's how you're using it, okay. But a lot of people use that just as a way to wiggle out. It's like, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. And it's like, well, has it ever become necessary for you to actually tell someone about Jesus? So, so you could use it as a way to wiggle out. And so, yes, be salt and light, but know that you're doing that not just to expand your moral behavioral resume. You behave in a way 
because God has called you to be a light for all people. You do this so that the world may come to know Jesus. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation, people in your workplace, in your office, your friends, your family, your loved ones, your children, everybody, you do this to point people to Jesus. And he's the best thing we have to offer. All right. Now, there, there's a problem at this point. Because it's like, yes, this is the mission of the church, and it's the mission of this church to be light and salt and to point people to Jesus. Yes. But there's some of you who have been wise and going like, there's something you've, you've left out, something you're missing. And for those of you who are a little bit more cynical like myself, you're going, there's some trickery going on. Because you're trying to say that I'm the light of the world. No, 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 no. That sounds pretty blasphemous. I'm not the light of the world. Who's the light of the world? Jesus is the light of the world. In fact, Jesus says that in John chapter 8. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So you're kind of going, huh, there's some exegetical trickery going on right here type of thing. I'm not the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. And to answer, yes, Jesus is the light of the world. There's an image that can help us understand this dynamic. And you guys know if you've been coming for a while, I like moon analogies. When the pandemic first hit and everything was first happening, we talked about how the moon is always round. Even if it don't look round, the moon is always round. Um, but there's, there's a, a, another um, dynamic about the moon that captures this idea well. The, the moon compared to the sun is like what? It's nothing. It's a little speck. It's like a, a grain of sand compared to the grandness of the sun. And for those of you who are into this stuff, you know that the sun is 400 times the diameter of the moon. Something like the, the sun is 27 million times the mass of the moon. We, we can't even, our brains can't even process that. Like we can act smart, yes, 27 million times. The, no, I don't even know how to think of that. The moon is 27 times million more mass than the moon. The moon's nothing, okay? Now question, does the moon have its own internal light source? No, right? doesn't have. What does it do? What does, what does the moon do? It simply sits in the splendor of the light of another. It sits in the splendor of the light of one greater. And it reflects back the light of the sun. Now question, how much of the sun's light do you think the moon actually reflects back? In other words, how efficient is the moon at reflecting back the light of the sun? What percentage of that light actually gets pushed back down to earth? Someone had a guess? What do you think? Very, yeah, that's, yeah that's, that's a general estimate. Yeah, a little bit. On a bad day, 3%. On like a perfect day, maybe 10 to 12%. We'll go with the lower number because don't think too highly of, of ourselves. Okay, 3%. The moon reflects a mere 3% of the light back. But here's the thing. As the moon sits in the splendor of the light of the greater, and it reflects back a merely 3% of its light, on a dark night, 
That's enough. On your best day, you may reflect just 3% of God's good light back down into this world. But let me tell you, 3% is enough to put a light in a dark sky. It's enough for the world to see. Your job is to sit in the splendor of King Jesus and his goodness hopefully bouncing back three, four, five percent, knowing that just that is enough to give light to a dark world. It's enough. It's enough to give light to this dark world. And what you do is you saturate yourself in Jesus and and you you read his word and you come to church and you sing his praises and, and we take communion and we do all of those things and we talk to to other believers and get wise counsel. And with every passing day, we're being conformed to the image of Jesus so that we look and talk and act more like him or more generous like him. And with every passing day, we're being conformed to that image, sitting and saturating ourselves in the splendor of another. And you do that and you will shine in a dark world. And you do that with a purpose and an end goal, right? Not just to be I'm such a good, I'm I'm so nice. Look at all this. No, no. I do this so that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, that people from the ends of the earth would come to know your Jesus. And he's the best thing you have to offer. And the crazy thing about it all is Jesus says these words to a group of scattered people in northern Galilee. And 2,000 years later, we're here today And right now, we join with other people on this Sunday morning from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from various languages and backgrounds, people from all across the globe, and we are all united in our worship of our one true good King. Historically speaking, when Jesus spoke those words, it would have been unthinkable. Today, we stand here as testimony to the faithfulness of Jesus to use his servant his people, to expand the gospel message throughout the whole world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Broken and fallen and fragile you are. Salt of the earth, light of the world. Let's stand as we take communion. We remember the goodness of Jesus every week by coming to communion. Jesus gives his life for us. So if you doubt the goodness of this God, if you doubt the radiance and brilliance of his own moral character, you turn to the cross. And we say, Jesus declares, this is my body broken for you. You take this and remember. So today we remember your goodness. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup. This is the blood of the new covenant. And as we say, the apostle Paul later says, you are to take this and continue taking it, declaring the death and resurrection of Jesus until he returns. And so until you return, Lord, 
We pray that we are salt of the earth people and we are light of the world people, that we are a Sermon on the Mount people, not for our own end, but so that your ends would be accomplished and that people from the ends of the earth would come to know your Son. Father, we give you thanks, and we turn this time in closing to a song of worship. And in this time, uh, we ask you, Father, that your Son would be honored by our worship, and may we sit in your presence, saturating ourselves in your goodness, and then in turn take it out into the world and shine brightly for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.